So, let me get everybody's attention. We'll go ahead and get going. Father, thank you so much for yet another beautiful day and the opportunity to meet and to, to study your word. We thank you for that. Um, for all those who have uh, answered your call to uh, expose, to open the word to us, we ask you to help them. You would open our hearts to receive. Father, we pray that everything we do today in study and song and, and uh, giving, that it would all be, bring you great praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought rather than uh, start with the psalm this morning, we'd, we'd start with the New Testament psalm. Did you know that, that Paul wrote psalms? You know, we, we typically look at the Old Testament authors and the collection of the psalms and the book of psalms. But psalm, uh, psalms are, are uh, they're expressions of the heart um, back to God, so they're part of the wisdom literature. And so we have examples of that in the New Testament. I thought we'd take a look at one uh, today. And we'll take a look at Romans chapter 8. We'll start with verse 26, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. So whoever gets there first would like to read out, do so. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26 through the end of the chapter. My, my wisdom in grouping this as a psalm, take a look at Psalm 27 and see how it compares to this, this section in the New Testament. Um, it is the heart of Paul in this case um, revealed for us as encouragement. If God is for us, 
who can be against us? We're in uh, John chapter 15 still, and I know we've been through it a couple of times. Um, and I, I trust that we will get into John chapter 16 uh, today. And then the next three weeks, I'm going to do a, a shift where I take a look at, at John um, and the final words of uh, John and Jesus to the disciples. We're going to take a, a missional focus because we have the missions banquet coming up and we want to take a look at how um, this applies to how we respond. So when I say it applies to how we respond, what's the theme of John? Everybody should know this because I read it every week. John 20, 31. John 20, 30 and 31 says this. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we understand that John wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to believe. So that's more, belief is more than just knowing. And so this is, this is kind of the area, the tension that we wrestle in a lot. Um, do, how do I know I believe? Because it's an act of the heart, um, which includes um, volition. And we sometimes uh, challenge ourselves in that. How, how firmly do we believe? But ultimately, we understand that um, belief leads to um, what um, I've focused on in chapter 15 is the word remain or abide in. That discipleship is more than um, just um, coming to church. It actually is how you live your life. And you live your life in communion with God. That can include how you dialogue with him in prayer throughout the week. It can include how you um, behave internally when nobody's watching and behave externally in community when people are watching, right? How, how you um, walk with God. We know that the Bible is full of examples of folk that walk with God. And that's what abiding is about. It's about remaining or dwelling in him in a very significant way. Um, and that that's the the foundation of our life, and that as God is the author and um, of life, He is life in Himself. He is when I say He's author, He's the Creator, and breathed life into us. And what happened is through sin we became separated from God. Well, in uh, coming to Christ as our Savior, we are actually entering into His life, which was demonstrated. Um, at the resurrection. We understand that this is all about the cross. In fact, this, this uh, passage that we're, this section that we're in right now called the Upper Room Discourse happened right before Jesus went to the cross where he died for our sins according to the scripture. And he was buried. And on the third day he was raised according to the scripture. We understand that his resurrection is a demonstration of our eternal life. Just as he has life in himself and can give it to whom he chooses, we read about that in John chapter 5, well, guess what? He chose us. He wants us to have life in him. And that's what John shared as the theme of, his, of uh, this gospel. So we're in chapter 15, and, and last week we uh, kind of dwelled in the first 
section of 15, and I'm going to go ahead and read all of 15, and then I'm going to raise a question that was given to me after the class. Chapter 15, we read, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You, already, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you are my friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, because, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. I know I read a little bit longer. If you actually look at this as a, as a complete section or, or a passage of thought, it actually goes through 16, verse 4. So last week we were talking about uh, the vine and the, the first 11 verses, and I know we've spent a lot of time on that, but I wanted to 
get to a question that uh, Mr. Reddington asked me after after church. So, great, call me out. So, so Tim, and, and rightfully so, struggles with uh, verse six and verse seven because there's if statements in there. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So, uh, and, and Tim, about, Tim and I have had this conversation a lot over the years uh, about uh, the nature of salvation. Can salvation be lost? Is it dependent upon some aspect of our uh, response or behavior? Or is it totally within uh, God's um, area of concern? And, and, so, uh, and, I, and I'm Baptist in my theology, so I will tell you that I believe once saved, always saved. And that presents some challenges in Scripture, especially when you come to if clauses like this, because it looks like, well, it looks like maybe I could squirm out of God's hands. There's an if there. Um, so it requires that I remain in order to be in this place where I'm not going to be thrown away as a branch drying up. So I would throw in 14 as well, verse 14. Yep. You're my friends if, if you, you do, do what, what I, I command you. Okay. Yep. I'm talking to his disciples. Yep. Well, so let's, let's take a look at 6 because it's the most serious of those ifs. Um, 6 has to do with the nature of uh, whether we get burned or not and what that means to get burned, right? Because it's talking about um, abiding in the vine, being connected to the source of life. So one of the things that's remarkable about this passage is Jesus is totally moving um, the seat of nationalistic religion from Israel as a nation. And he's putting the, the seat of um, the, the, uh, the substance of religion in himself. So the, the Jews thought that they were special in, in God's kingdom, that they had a special um, place, that they were chosen by him, and that the land that they had was a special part of the promise of God to his people. And that goes all the way back to Abraham, and they're still fighting it over, over it today. Right? And you'll see nationalistic uh, Judaism, Zionism is what it is typically tagged today, as that fervor for the land that can actually be destructive to us as Christians. And I say that because um, when I was in Bethlehem in 2002, um, I actually was in the, the Church of the Nativity right after there had been a siege there. So there was a group of Palestinians that held out in the Church of the Nativity resisting the Israeli government that had come with tanks and was charging over houses. They were trying to secure a perimeter in the land. And Bethlehem is actually in the uh, Palestinian territory. It's not in Israeli territory. So they wanted to create a, a distinct barrier so that they could keep the Palestinians out of national Israel. And in the course of doing that, they were charging through people's houses. And these houses that they were charging through were Christians. 
So the Christians were on the wrong end of the tank gun. And I met with uh, uh, a pastor and the only evangelical um, Bible college in Israel happens to be in Palestinian territory in Bethlehem. And he said, I don't think the world understands when they're standing behind Israel, nationalistic Israel, they're actually destroying us. And today, if you go there, they built this huge wall. And I can show that to some of you who are going to be attending a session later after church when we talk about going to Israel. They built a wall there now through people's property. They've, they've totally destroyed what people had owned in their, their uh, heritage for years in order to create this separation. And what this passage is talking about, Jesus, 2,000 and some years ago, was already in the process of helping correct the religious problem in the land. But the religious problem of the Pharisees wasn't that they were zealous for God, because they certainly had a zeal, but that their zeal was misdirected. And that they needed to actually um, make the, the, the heart of their life God himself. And that they needed to be responsive to what God had said, what he had declared in his revelation. Because we understand that if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, what occurs in chapter 18 of John and 19 of John, the crucifixion, the, the trial and crucifixion of Christ, was planned from the very beginning. That this is a plan of God in order to redeem humanity. And that... Uh, that one would die in our place and that that one would be God himself in order to draw us back into communion with him. It was the only way. That's why we, are, we have an exclusive claim as evangelical Christians. We say there is one way to God. We read that in John 14, um, verse 6, where Jesus said to him, I am the way. He's not, I am a way. I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there's this exclusive claim, and Jesus is saying that that claim is not in the land. That claim is not in being a Jew. Um, and, and part of the promise of Abraham, or descendant of Abraham, but that, that way is in him. That he is the seed of religion. What he says here is he totally takes the, the nationalism of the Jews and he puts it on trial and he says I am the true vine and that's good news for us because I'm not Jewish by descent but I love God and I want to be connected to him right I want to be in communion that's what Jesus made available and he's saying that that everybody if you have life you're a branch connected to the vine which is him and he gets to this statement in, uh, I'm gonna, I'll read in verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. In other words, there is life nowhere else. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So this is a, this is a verse about salvation. This is a verse, verse about life. Right? So we want to understand what that if means. So you may have heard me say before that there are uh, a couple of different kinds of ifs or meaning of a conditional in, uh, in the Greek. 
And I'm going to bring up some Greek here, and I don't know if anybody can read that or not. <laughs> Probably not. It's all Greek to me. But I wanted to bring up my cheater. Uh, my cheater. You see if I can make this bigger. Maybe you can look at it. I don't know if you can or not. Um, <laughs> That's not so going to help. This is, this, is, this is John 15, right? But I'm going to point out a couple of words because it's the if word. And that there are four kinds of conditions of if. And I would refer you to a grammar um, that was written by Daniel Wallace, Dr. Dan Wallace, who was here this last fall and did a presentation on Romans for us here over a weekend. Did an in-depth study in Romans. Well, he wrote the grammar. He is a a Greek scholar par excellence. He's one of the people that um, many refer to when they're looking for an understanding of the Greek grammar and syntax and usage and manuscripts in the world today. So we had in our presence, and I hope you took advantage of it, one of the greats. And uh, Dr. Wallace put in his grammar an ex- a whole chapter on the conditional, on the if statement. He said there are four different kinds of conditions. There is what we call a first condition or a class, first class conditional, which is reality assumed true. And that that would be, we use it as a form of, of speech where the assumption is not in question. There's no probability that the then statement will not be completed. But rather, it's assumed that it will be. So, um, let me see if I can bring up some verses that will show you that. And then you can look them up. I, this is actually... Uh, Wallace's grammar right here. Can you make it any bigger? Yeah. And then, of course, my program's going to crash on me. I'll try to make it bigger. Uh, let me see. First class condition. Um, I don't know if I can or not. I mean, it's already blown up as big as it'll go. Um, take a look at um, Matthew 12, 27, 28. Or uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 13. So, um, let, I'll use 1 Corinthians 15.13. So, 1 Corinthians 15.13 says, If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. So, that's a, a form of speech where um, the then clause is assumed true. Because if there is no resurrection, the true statement would be Christ has not been raised. Right? It isn't, well, maybe it was Christ, Christ was raised, or maybe not. No. You can't have resurrection. Um, you can't have Christ raised if there is no resurrection. So it's reality assumed true. And the, the particular, and I know you won't see this, but this is an EI, uh, epsilon iota, in, in Greek. And that's the if. And when you see this first class conditional, that's the form that you will see. It always follows this Greek form. Then there's a a second class conditional, which would be reality assumed false. So it's just the opposite of a first class conditional. In other words, there's no probability that the outcome will not occur. It's just going to be a negative reality. So let me give you a, see if I can find an example of, of a second class conditional. Let's see. 
second class conditional, contrary to fact. Relations 110. Um, let's, let's use Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians 2.8. So 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, If they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So think about this. Um, if they would have understood what Christ was doing for them on the cross, the enemies of Christ, Satan himself, would not have allowed Christ to be crucified. Because that's defeating his cause. Right? So that's the logical argument. And that, so again, that's reality assumed to be either true, positive, or false, negative. And so, again, you see that same Greek construction, epsilon iota, the EI, A. So maybe they were Canadian, I don't know. Um, so that's a first and second class conditional. Now you get to a conditional the way that we typically think of a conditional. If, as a cause and effect, if something is true, if you do something, then something will happen, right? A cause and effect. That's what we call a third-class conditional. And in a third-class conditional, um, you can have cause and effect. In other words, if you don't remain in the branch, you're going to get toasted. Or if you don't remain in the vine, you're going to get toasted. Um, I would take you to... Uh, an understanding rather than as uh, there is a sense of probability associated with the third class conditional. So I'm going to read this for, for you um, just because I know nobody can read it. Um, it says the third class condition often presents the condition as uncertain of fulfillment, but still likely. In other words, it's not totally excluded. There are, however, many exceptions to this. It's difficult to give one semantic label to the structure, especially in Hellenistic Greek. The, the structure of the crotasis involves uh, the particle E-A-N. And so instead of E-I, it's E-A-N. Um, followed by the subjunctive mood in any tense. So if you know anything about uh, grammar, if you have different, uh, like indicative mood, um, so if you have a command, it's going to be imperative mood, like, do this, right? That's a mood that you have in grammar. Well, the subjunctive mood has this uh, sense of uh, uncertainty or probability in it, okay? So that you'll always see this construction associated with this particular mood in grammar. Um, and it goes on and it describes it a little bit. Let me give you examples to show where you can have um, uh, an example of a probability that is most likely certain but not necessarily guaranteed. So take a look at John 3.12. It says in John 3.12, If I have told you earthly things, yet you do not believe, how will you believe if I should tell you heavenly things? So it's possible that you may or may not believe even though Jesus makes a statement that's true. Right? I think probably to give us the most insight into the verse that we're looking at would be the construction that we see in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. It's 
still John, so we would expect that John would be consistent in his usage. So this is the kind of construct that we see in chapter 15. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much probability is in that? Well, it is probable that God may not choose us, that he may not choose to forgive us. There's no probability. So you're making a certainty about that, right? So you're, you're assuming that it's most likely the case. Well, no, he's saying that if you can... Well, I would put that the then is what we're concerned about. Because the other could be the case that, well, you may choose to not be in, uh, in the, connected to the vine, but you may or may not burn. Right? In other words, you might be able to choose your own way and still survive. I think he was saying the other way, that it's right. the, if you're, you're part putting is the true, certainty. then of course the following will happen. Right. God will forgive right. It's It's the then, though, it, yeah. that is the cause that follows the effect. So certainly if you reject Jesus, you have no place in him. And that we're not arguing. That if you choose to reject the revelation of God, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, "Real, the reality is there is no other way to the Father. If you choose to reject that, then sure enough, you're disconnected. But what is it possible for you to um, wiggle out of his hands once chosen that to unchoose that right and what I'm saying is that the then is certain right okay, wait, wait, wait. alright so give, give me a second to defend myself okay yep alright so yes I'm at a Baptist church it's my church family and all that um, but um I think there's some theology that is, um, I don't know if I want to say too good to be true or whatever, but it's like when I was back in high school and thinking a lot about this stuff, um, you know, I said, well, always, well, never mind that. Okay, so (laughs) I I think the point of, of chapter 15 is that he's talking to the disciples um, and he's actually setting them up to go out and change the world in a way. Um, He gives this discourse and I think it causes me to ask how fruitful am I? I have no doubt that that the vine that Jesus, you know, and, and he's saying his father is the vine dresser. Right. We're just a branch, okay? Right. So if we're fruitful, we get pruned because he wants, the goal is to bear fruit. Right. Okay? And if we're not fruitful, you get cut off and thrown away. Okay? That's now, not what it says here, though. It doesn't say, if you're not fruitful, you get cut off. It says, if you don't abide yeah. in me. Oh, okay. So that's different. That's so different. Words, if That's I, different. If you don't this doesn't have to do with fruit. <laughs> this does not have to do with fruit. And people will naturally look at their life and they'll say, man, I'm not bearing the kind of fruit that I read about in the Bible. Therefore, am I in the vine? Right? And sure enough, we know that, that the, the Father... So, in many ways, people come to Christianity with an expectation that my life is going to get easier. <laughs> no! 
You're, you're, you're putting yourself under the pruning shear, right? Because when you are God's and he's pruning that life in you, he's going to prune you in such a way that you remain and bear fruit. So let, let me finish though. So, sure. so my point is, I'm actually not worried about my salvation. I I, I believe that if I, um, you know, well, and I have uh, accepted the Lord as my Savior, and 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 I, you know, I've done what what I can do, and I trust that His blood is enough to cover me and my sin. What I'm worried about, just sort of in the back of my head, intellectually, I guess. Mm-hmm. And what I have discussions with my sons about, and, and what I really have a hard time believing, is when I read, you know, the book here. I just don't see that that it's sort of uh, so cut and dry that it's like uh, once saved, always saved. So I think that there's a whole bunch of conditional things, you know, and I'm not worried about God's being able to save me, I'm worried about me walking away from him. Right. And, and, and what did Jesus say? And about what him? I don't trust is me. I don't trust me. <laughs> I, no, I understand I'm totally. Sinner, you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and I see where I fall short. And I, and I see where I don't bear fruit like maybe I should. And I see that I can do better. And that's what this kind of thing reminds me of, is that, you know what, we have to remain in Him. We have to, um, I don't know what all that means, but be pruned or whatever now I'm here. Um, and, and I, don't get me wrong, I feel totally blessed in my life. I've been blessed way beyond what I deserve. I mean, it's not even close. And some people would say, well, you've got great fruit in your life, you know. You've got great family. Da, da, da. Well, okay, all that's really true. But I don't know what I've really done for him. You, know? you haven't done anything for him in the sense that we could bring any merit to God. So this is, this is we're, trying, we're trying to measure up. Because that's what the world tells us. You need to measure up. And by the way, if you got wrinkles, you don't measure up. So you better get some wrinkles. <laughs> if you got gray hair um, and, it, and it's unsightly gray hair, you want to dye that out. Right? If you've got excess cellulite, you need to deal with that. Right? You're not measuring up. That's what the world tells you. It tells you that on every front. Everything that you... I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at me. So, the world tells us that on every single front. It is a, 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 a set of scales. The judgment to humanity has to do with having the balance. And that's why when we put together religion, we always like to put merit in one balance to gain favor in the other. And it's like, no, no, no. God's saying, it don't work that way. I am who I am. You aren't. And, and life is indeed. Right. right. But yeah, you myself do. going astray because yeah. that's what's in So so I am a saved uh, a saved critter. And and I am trusting wholly, if I have any life at all, now and in the future, it is wholly the work of God. So I'm trusting wholly in Him. Right? Now, I can tell you that my life is not perfect. And I can give you, I can cite examples. 
And I can tell you this last week that the Holy Spirit busted me big time. Right? And, and I heard, and I was so grateful that I heard. Right? I, I all of a sudden came into closer contact with God because I was willing to own my sin. This is what it tells me in 1 John chapter 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? We don't, God doesn't want us to sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not only ours also, but for the whole world. That's why I think we can go to verse 1-9, which has that conditional, third class conditional, that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I'm not willing to, to own the sin that I have, how can God, even though it's forgiven, how can that forgiveness come into my life? Right? So there is no doubt that God is gracious and merciful and kind. There's also no doubt that God is righteous and true. And in that comes justice. And I'm afraid of God's justice, right? I'm afraid that if I don't bear fruit, if I don't measure up, he's going to prune me off. I'm not going to abide in him, and I'm going to be thrown away as a branch. And if I'm disconnected from the source of life, guess what happens? You dry up, and you no longer have any value. The value that we have comes from being connected to the vine. Not because we're a cool-looking branch. Or that we have any merit in ourselves. So this is talking about being connected to God. And what, what we're um, to do is not just sit there as a branch, but to be introspective enough to say, wow, I need to have this pruned in my life. And then to be responsive when the pruning occurs. So hopefully the revelation that I had this last week of God looking at my life very gently and just nudging me, saying, pay attention to that, Dave. That's important. The world doesn't think it's important, but it's important to me. And when I respond to that, I'm bearing fruit. Now, I don't have to respond. I can be uh, a baby my whole life. But God doesn't want us to be babies. He wants us to grow up and not drink milk, but to be able to eat meat, discern what is true and what is not. We read that in Hebrews 5.10 or 5.13. Right? So that's what, there, there is a, a responsibility as a disciple. And that's what this abiding is all about. Right? And that God, when this is what Jesus said in the, the following passages. Right? He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And you've got to look at 12 through 17 um, as an uh, inclusio. It's got parentheses around it. And the parentheses are, love one another, just as I have loved you. It ends in, I command you, you love one another. Right? So that's the inclusio. And in the middle of that, he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So he's making a, a statement of, of fact, of truth. There is no greater love than that you would give everything that you have for another person. That's what love is. And then he goes on to say, you are my friends. So he's chosen us. If you do what I command you. 
So there's an, uh, a, um, you, can, you can put a measure on that, say, um, it's not conditional that I am his friend only if I do what he commands me, but if I do what he commands me, it's a demonstration that I am his friend. So he has chosen us first. But it's possible, like if the Holy Spirit nudged you this last week and you didn't accept the nudging or the prompting, right, right. then isn't it possible that you would not be his friend? Ah, and, and, and so what happens with friends? It says, um, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. It has to do with a sensitivity to the message. And that when you're a friend of somebody, in the sense that this word friend is used here, it means that you have a communion where you can, like, read the mail of the other person. So when it, uh, a few verses down in, in uh, chapter 19, where Jesus is on trial and he's brought before Pilate, and the accusation made by the high priest to Pilate, he says, um, if you don't crucify this man, you are no friend of Caesar." So um, he's using, now was Pilate a friend of Caesar? No, he wasn't a chum. But he was, uh, had the, the right, as one who was in the inner circle, to actually see and appropriate the vision of Caesar for himself and then execute that as the procurator. Right? So he had a visibility uh, and... Um, trying to think of the right word here, an intimacy that Pilate had to execute Caesar's will. That's what it means by friend. That if I listen to, the, to God speaking to me and I respond, I am submitting my will to his will. I'm going to hear him the next time he calls. It's not that he doesn't call. It's just that I'm not doing this. So I'm going to be able to enjoy that intimacy. And that intimacy will bear fruit. It'll bear all sorts of good kind of fruit. And I would say that um, if you keep doing this to God, you're going to get to a point where you can't hear. And it's not because God's not speaking. It's because you've developed a pattern, a callus around your heart, a protection that you know better than God. That's why the third commandment says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. What does that mean, to take the name of the Lord in vain? It means to empty God of who he is. That he's no longer God in your life. That he is empty as a vapor. So, you want intimacy? That's why Ron Mel uh, calls the Ten Commandments the Tender Commandments. And Pastor Mel passed away a few years ago, but I still love what he's written, and I listen to what he says, because he had an intimacy with God that I want to hear about, and I want to cultivate in my life. And I'll, I'll use a, a biblical uh, example of a binding branch and bearing fruit to help that come about. That's what discipleship's about. So this is a discipleship passage, not a salvation passage. Although I would say that if, you're, if you don't believe, you don't have life. Uh, a practical example of what we're talking about here was several years ago, a man uh, had served the Lord for many, many years, had his body 
outlived his money. And I knew this, and he fell into some sin. And he was a great man before my eyes, and he's, this just doesn't make sense. And that was a couple of things that uh, I realized then. One, yeah, he, he is not able to consistently sort through things. That's why some of our uh, agent are always uh, targets of scams and deceptions and such. And the thing that you just covered, the third command, was a really that drove it home. What was happening was not within really the nature of God, but I knew grace abides, and grace abided in that season passed when he was back to walking. But it was just a shock to me to see that. And it can, what that does to you is, you know, you're, you're younger, but one day you may be older. What's going to happen with me? Yeah. And what I learned there is grace will abide then too if something happens. Yep. And that th this is the amazing love of God. He does not give up on us. He is faithful when we are faithless. You ever read that in the Bible? That's what that's talking about. And he said, no greater love has a man than this. Has one than this. That one would lay down his life for his friends. So, Jesus demonstrated the love of God to the end. That's why I love this passage, because this, this section, because it starts out 13, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, this chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the fullest, to, the, to eternally. <clears throat> He doesn't give up just because we are, are dirt clods, which truly we are. We're not pond scum, we're dirt clods. <clears throat> That's what the Bible tells us. The world will tell you you're pond scum. But. Well, kind of go back with you know, Tim. Uh, if he has doubts about once saved, always saved, I'm going to come in late, not the whole chapter, but especially what we read this morning. Romans 8, I mean, it, it talks about, uh, you know, in the middle of the chapter, it talks about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. You know, we, we're saved, but, and, and, you know, we're not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and He does, right. if you're saved. But, you know, even that familiar verse, you know, all things work together for good, I would, I would throw out to you that even your sin works together for good. And that sounds weird, but, you know, he, Dave gave a perfect example. The Holy Spirit called him out this week. Your sin increases your awareness of, of your wickedness and increases your awareness of your need for salvation and increases your awareness of how great the salvation is and brings you to God on your knees, you know, and humbles you. But all these things work together for your good. And all the things that we tend to think, oh, I just screwed up. I wonder if I lost it. You know, the fact that you're thinking that, you've heard that before, the fact that you're thinking that tells you the Holy Spirit's working in you uh, to, to pull you back to God. So the whole chapter eight in Romans is fabulous for the assurance of self once they have always saved. And I and I thought that that would be the appropriate um, introduction to our discussion this morning because um, what we see in the passages that we're looking at in fifteen one through seventeen is that core principle of uh, 
life in him. What it means to, to be a disciple. And that means you get challenged and you get pruned. It means that you wrestle with heavy-duty theology. It means that you um, address issues of intimacy and drawing near to God. Right? Um, if, if we draw near, he says, all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. How does that happen? That happens through the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And that's exactly what he goes into next. And he sandwiches it in between, so he gives us this good news. Oh, by the way, I'm doing this so that your joy, my joy can be in you. Your joy will be complete in him. And that, by the way, you're going to get smashed in this. The world's going to hate you. And the evidence of that is they hated me. And so when you speak of me, they're going to hate you as they hated me. They didn't receive my word, they're not going to receive yours either. But don't worry, that's not the end. What comes next is the offensive, so we understand the, the defensive aspects of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin and uh, an understanding of sin, and um, like I expressed, you know, telling me very gently, Dave, this is important, pay attention to this, this last week. Um, that's the defensive, but then there's an offensive piece as well, and that's what we read about in chapter 16. That the Holy Spirit is actually um, in us powerfully to help us succeed, so that we can be more than conquerors, as is said in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read that real quick, because we're almost out of time, and I don't want to lose this focus. So I'm going to, looking like I'm skipping over verses 18 through uh, 27, that's, that's about that um, we will be hated. But you read in verse 26 of chapter 15, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds, proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now he's specifically speaking to those that were with him that would lose their lives in the course of their testimony. Um, but he's also speaking to us. That there is an active, offensive um, aspect of the Spirit of God working in us in this world. We are more than just passive, ad, passive uh, ambassadors. We are active voice for Christ. We are the hands and feet. Uh, that's what the church is today. The hands and feet of Christ in the world through the Spirit. And I'm going to pick up at verse 5 in chapter 16. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So this has to do with the, the necessity of Christ's death. That if death is not conquered, as demonstrated through the resurrection, the spirit has no offensive capability in the world. We have to be able to speak the good news, which is that God truly conquered death and that he's made a way for communion with him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's not convicting us, he's convicting the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. There's that friendship, that intimacy that comes in abiding. Right? That you're able to have that dialogue with God. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the very riches of Christ are given to us. That when you're in Christ, when you're a child of the King, there is incredible benefit and blessing in that. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said uh, to one another, what is this thing that he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And then again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he says? A little while. We don't know, don't know what he's talking about. So this had to do with the resurrection. This is all in local scope here. Not talking about the second coming, talking about the resurrection. So Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. When Christ conquered death, when he demonstrated that our life in him is eternal, the very life that can be present with God for all eternity, to sit at his right hand, as the Son of Man, having received an eternal dominion, when, when that was presented to us, we knew that even though death is still present, it is not the end. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that it was true. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he asked Martha, do you believe this? And he asked us, do you believe this? Do you believe that you'll be resurrected? Do you believe that you'll have eternal life? That is in Christ, and he demonstrated it. That's why they would rejoice. And it would only be a matter of a couple of days, and they would see that the, the war was won. That which separated them had been removed. That Jesus was successful. And in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name, Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John wants us to know that Jesus, the man, is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember that. He's not just a myth. He's an actual person that lived among us. Right? And these are the testimonies of his life among us. He isn't some mythical uh, superman that... Um, we have as a Savior. He's like us in every way, and yet conquered death. These things I have spoken to you in a figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. 
I came forth from the Father, and having come into the world, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. This disciple said, Whoa, now you're speaking plainly, and you're not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things, and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming, and it has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's where we're going to end today. And we'll unpack that, because I know that there are probably questions, but we're out of time. Just go away knowing this. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for opportunity to come to you and to wrestle with tough questions. And I don't know that they are fully resolved this morning, Lord, probably not. Um, but Lord, every time that we wrestle, we come closer. Just as uh, Jacob wrestled with you at Peniel uh, and came face to face with you, and that he walked away a changed man. He was different from that point, including his name. And that uh, we wrestle with you, and we're different because of that, Lord. And we thank you that you name us, that you have, uh, when you call us, we hear your voice, that we are your sheep. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you continue to gently um, provide and protect and, and pull us into close intimacy with you. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for this. Ask you to be with Bob this morning. Ask you to be with the activities of the day. And thank you for such a beautiful day, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.